Thank you, Heman. Children, you can be dismissed. Just before I got up here, uh, Val Coyle said to me, can we just skip and get to the barbecue? So I dedicate this message to Val. <laughs> you all are invited to the barbecue after the service. We just want to let you know that. It's not just for those that call this their regular home church. It is for everybody that is here today. Uh, and like the announcement was made earlier, it is going to be inside, although the pony rides will be outside, but uh, we'll be going to the gym after, and we'll be eating in there. Well, it was two against one, a battle of two against one, two kings against one king. On the one side, the side with the two kings was Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and Ahab, the king of Israel. These two had formed an alliance through a strategic marriage of Jehoshaphat marrying into Ahab's family. On the other side was the king of a warring group of people of Aram from Ramoth-Gilead, two against one. you think the odds would be in the favor of the side with two, but when we read the account of what happened to the battle, you will hear a very different story. Jehoshaphat comes across as a little bit of a Larry the Cucumber in this story. Not sure what was going through his mind when he listened to Ahab, but let's pick up the story, 2 Chronicles chapter 18, at the very end, and hear what happened in the battle. So King Ahab of Israel and King Jehoshaphat of Judah led their armies against Ramoth-Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, as we go into battle, I will disguise myself so that no one will recognize me, but you wear the royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. So there is the Larry the Cucumber moment. What was Jehoshaphat thinking? Oh, sure, I'll dress up in the king's robes, knowing that that is exactly who the enemy wants to attack. Meanwhile, the story goes on, the king of Aram had issued orders to his chariot commanders, attack only the king of Israel. Don't bother with anyone else. So when the Aramean chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat in his royal robes, they went after him. There is the king of Israel, they shouted. But Jehoshaphat called out, and the Lord saved him. God helped him by turning the attackers away from him. As soon as the chariot commanders realized he was not the king of Israel, they stopped chasing him. An Aramean soldier, however, randomly shot an arrow at the Israelite troops, and it hit the king of Israel between the joints in his armor. Turn the horses and get me out of here, Arab groaned to the driver of the chariot. I'm badly wounded. The battle raged all that day. The king of Israel propped himself up on his chariot, facing the Arameans, and in the evening, just as the sun was setting, he died. And then Jehoshaphat flees back to Jerusalem. How did Jehoshaphat get himself into this situation? What happened that he would even listen to the king of Israel, 
basically agreeing to wear a target on his back and to march into a battle that obviously they were unprepared for. How did things come to this? Complete devastation. And this was a war that they did not even have to fight. Why did these two kings enter this battle? Why did Jehoshaphat agree to put himself in such danger? In fact, Jehoshaphat's lucky that he wasn't lying among the dead like Ahab, having his eyes plucked out by vultures, and that he was actually able to get away by the mercy of God in his prayer of, God save me. How did Jehoshaphat, who is described at the beginning of his story, 2 Chronicles 17, begins his story by saying that Jehoshaphat was a good king, whose heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. How did this king, whose heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord, get himself entangled in this mess? Well, Jehoshaphat succeeded his father Asa on the throne. Last week we talked about Asa, Jehoshaphat's Asa's son. He's the sixth in the line of David. He's the fourth in the line since it has been split into Judah and Israel since his great-great-grandfather Rehoboam split the kingdom. And we read that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because in his earlier years he walked in the ways of his father David. And despite some blunders and occasional blatant sins, Jehoshaphat remained faithful to the end. Unlike his father Asa, who we talked about last week, who hardened his heart at the end, Jehoshaphat remained faithful to the Lord to the very end. In fact, the Bible even says that Jehoshaphat was one of the very few excellent kings. There are some many bad kings, and then there are some good kings, and there are just a select few that say that they were very good kings. And Jehoshaphat was one of those. During his reign, he removed many of the pagan high places. Now, you may remember from last week that his father Asa had already done the same thing, which just goes to show that every generation has to pluck out the roots of the slide back into destruction and paganism. You can't follow the faith of your parents and expect their faith to carry over to your faith. Somehow the people had fallen back, and so Jehoshaphat, even though his father had done it, had to also clear the nation of the paganism that the people were going back to. Making the commitment personal, making it his own. Jehoshaphat also refortified the cities. It says he became financially prosperous. He was blessed with peace. That often accompanies being prosperous because you're not spending so much time always fighting and being in battle. So he became prosperous. The fear of God was in all the other nations around him. And so the nations were too afraid to attack him. Some were even paying tribute to Jehoshaphat. If you lived in Judah during the time of Jehoshaphat, you would have been fortunate to have lived in one of the good times of Judah. Jehoshaphat was also concerned for the moral and the spiritual health of his people. The Bible says that he employed Levites and priests and trained lay leaders to go around and to teach the people the ways of the Lord. It says they taught throughout Judah, taking with them the book of the law, 
They went around from town to town in Judah and taught the people. And this was promoted by the king himself. And Jehoshaphat brought reform to his people in a much more civilized way than his father. He didn't go and kill all the people that didn't follow God like Asa did. But much more tried to persuade people, educate them, help them learn, let them make decisions. Things were going well with Jehoshaphat. In fact, there was even peace between Judah and Israel because of a strategic alliance between Jehoshaphat and Ahab, the king of Israel, through a marriage alliance. But there are some things that God's people cannot be at peace with. And this is the key to one of Jehoshaphat's biggest blunders. You see, this alliance was going to become a major problem for Jehoshaphat. Because though Jehoshaphat was a very good king, a godly king, the Bible describes Ahab as one of the wickedest kings Israel had. And an alliance between goodness and wickedness never ends well. There are some things God's people can just not compromise with. It's interesting that after it sets up the story in 2 Chronicles 17, we move to 2 Chronicles 18, and it starts by saying that Jehoshaphat went down to visit Ahab in Samaria. Now, you might think that this is just a throwaway line until you do your geography. First off, if you look at it on a map... Ahab and Israel were above Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat. So if you look at it on a map, there's no way that Jehoshaphat would have went down to Israel. He would have had to gone up. But you're saying, okay, Steph, maybe that's not the way it's meant. Maybe it's talking about the elevation of the ground. Uh, maybe Jerusalem was on a high, high hill and where... Uh, the king of Ahab was up in Samaria, and, and that um, was a lot lower. But if you look on it on elevation, you'll see that it's basically on the exact same elevation from the rise of the sea level. So unless the author here is talking about Jehoshaphat going down a little hill, which seems kind of trivial, you wonder why he says that Jehoshaphat went down to Israel. Unless this is one of those storytelling devices where the down is talking more about the spiritual and moral path that Jehoshaphat is about to take than a literal one. Jehoshaphat is about to go down spiritually, morally, because of an unhealthy alliance that he is making between the king of Israel, one of the wickedest kings Israel ever had. And during his visit, when he gets there, Ahab turns on the charm. It says that Ahab slaughtered many sheep and cattle for him. In fact, Ahab threw a huge after-the-service Sunday barbecue. And Ahab even got good weather with it. 
He put on the charm, laid out the food. He was going to make Jehoshaphat feel that he was welcome. And it was because Ahab had an ulterior motive. See, Ahab wanted to attack Aram from Ramoth Gilead. And he wanted Jehoshaphat to accompany him. And what better way than to try to sweet talk somebody into a plan that you have than to stuff them with food. Maybe give them a little bit of wine as well. Try to get their guard down a bit. And as this table is spread before him and as Jehoshaphat is eating the juicy burgers and he's won over by all the fanfare, Ahab brings the presentation, shows the battle plans, and Jehoshaphat says, this sounds pretty good. But, remember, he's a godly king. Why don't we inquire of the Lord first? And, and, and find out if God is in on these plans. Well, this wasn't a problem for Ahab. Because Ahab had employed hundreds of pastors to work for him. He had a whole onslaught of bishops and archbishops and pastors. However, all of these pastors were kind of puppet pastors. In this story, he brings 400 of his puppet pastors to come and to preach to him and to tell him exactly what he wants to hear. We read, so the king of Israel brought together the prophets, 400 men, and he asked them, Shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for God will give it into the hands of the king. And these prophets were skilled communicators. They weren't boring university lecturers that just stood behind a podium and blah, blah, blah. They were skilled communicators. There was one guy who was so amazing that he won the preaching award back then. He used props and illustrations and everything that he possibly could to try to get people to grab onto the message. In fact, in this particular sermon, Zedekiah, Mr. Preaching Award, he grabbed some horns and he put them on and he started walking along the stage and he said, yeah, you're going to win the battle. You're going to gore the enemies with these horns. You're going to gore them and get into their guts and pull their guts out. It was good preaching. It was good stuff. People started saying, amen, preach it. These are the kinds of preachers that Ahab had employed. With these you'll gore the Arameans and they will be destroyed. Powerful, colorful sermonizing. And then the whole choir of other preachers joined in and said, attack Ramoth Gilead. People started shouting, amen. He said, you'll be victorious. Preach it, brother. The fanfare then brought up the band. The band started playing and they played a song called, the Lord will give them into your hands. It was an exciting worship service. But as all of it went on, Jehoshaphat sat back and said, I don't know. Do you have any other preachers around? I mean, these guys are pretty good, but all this ultra-seeker-sensitive, positive-thinking type of preaching, I'm just wondering if there's a second opinion. You got any other preachers around? Is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can acquire from? 
Jehoshaphat said, which is kind of a slap in the face of all these other guys, implying that they're not from the Lord. After all the big juicy burgers, Jehoshaphat still had the nerve to ask Ahab, do you got any real pastors here? You know, someone that's actually kind of close to God. I'd like to hear from any of them. Not all your institutional religious suck-ups. Well, Ahab does have a guy. Why he keeps him around is kind of a mystery. Because this guy's been backbenched for not towing the denominational party line. The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, Yeah, there's still one man. And we can acquire of him. But I hate this guy. Because he never prophesies anything good for me, but always bad. His name is Micaiah. So with Jehoshaphat's persistence, Ahab reluctantly sends for Micaiah. Now as a pastor myself, I try to put myself into Micaiah's situation and think, what would it be like to enter into that request? In fact, it actually says that before he is even to go before the king, Micaiah's board, all Micaiah's other pastor guys, like these 400 others, all the other people that he works with, the denominational leaders, they pull him aside and say, look, all the prophets are promising victory for the king. So be sure that you agree with them and promise success. You might even get a promotion. If you do this. So what do you do? They even give you a copy of a sermon that has been printed off of the internet and say, just preach this. It's good stuff. We'll even give you props. It all comes in a neat little bag. And you just need to proclaim that. You'll be on the side of everyone else. Everything will be good. And the king will be happy. Even Mr. Preaching Award is towing party line. And he's got the biggest church in the land. So what are you to do? Everybody is on the side of the king. And yet you know that as surely as the Lord lives, you cannot speak other than what God tells you to say. And you're pretty sure that God's going to tell you to say something quite different than what everybody else is saying. That's a pretty lousy situation to be in. And so, in the words of Jesus, Micaiah takes a crafty as a serpent, but innocent as a dove approach. We read that when he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, we've just had this great worship service, and I've heard from all of my pastors, even my top pastor, They've all been telling me that God's saying we should go attack Ramoth Gilead. We're just wanting to hear from you too. Should I go and attack Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? Sure, attack, be victorious. God will give them into you. You can have them. You'll win the battle. Sure, sure. Well, Micaiah says those words. But there's something about the way that he says it that sets Ahab off. Maybe it's 
the fact that Micaiah didn't start up with saying, thus saith the Lord, or the Lord says, and then said the quote or the message. That's usually how prophets talk. Maybe the fact that he just said, yeah, go ahead. You'll win. Yeah, God will be with you. That's what you want to hear, sure. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was the tone of voice. We all know that tone of voice changes everything. If I said to my wife, I love you, she probably would not hear that as a very sweet remark. I said the right words, but tone of voice matters. So maybe it was the tone of voice, the way that Micaiah said it. Obviously, what he was saying, Ahab knew was not what Micaiah really believed. Because the very next thing we read is the king said to him, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the Lord's name? Come on, stop pulling my leg. I know you're not telling me the truth. I know you're not telling me what God is actually saying. How many times, which is interesting that he says how many times, because it seems like Micaiah probably did this approach before. I think Ahab's relationship with Micaiah was similar to King Herod's relationship with John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist kept King Herod, or, or, or Herod kept John the Baptist alive, stuffed him in prison. And this is what we read in the New Testament. Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, and yet he liked to listen to him. Isn't that interesting? Herod hated the message of John the Baptist, but somehow he liked to listen to him. There was something about his message that Herod knew was true, even though he didn't like the message. I think Ahab must have had a very similar relationship with Micaiah. Somehow he hated Micaiah, hated his message, but he kept Micaiah around because he also sort of knew that Micaiah really was of God. And he liked to hear the true message as much as he hated to hear the true message. And Micaiah was a brilliant pastor. I love this guy. I mean, he was absolutely brilliant. He comes and he listens in a way to the words of his colleagues. All the colleagues tell him to give a certain message. And so Micaiah, on the one hand, does what they say, but he doesn't do it in the right way, with the right tone of voice and with the right approach. So the king immediately knows he's not being sincere, and so he's then commanded by the king to tell the truth. So now he has to just say, hey, the king told me I have to tell the truth. Brilliant. And so he obeys the king. And then Micaiah told him, in a vision, I saw all of Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep without a shepherd. And here's that phrase. He says, and the Lord said, their master has been killed. Send them home in peace. All of Israel is going to be scattered on the mountains and their king, their shepherd, Ahab, you are going to be killed. Now at this point, Ahab leans over Jehoshaphat and said, See, 
I told you. In fact, the words exactly say, didn't I tell you the king of Israel explained to Jehoshaphat? He never prophesies anything but trouble for me. But Micaiah doesn't stop. He has no notion that the service is supposed to end at a certain time. He just goes right on preaching. And now he directs his message. He's told the king that you're going to fail in this battle. Israel's going to be scattered all over. You're going to die. And then he shifts his message to all of his colleagues, the 400 other pastors, and says, listen to what the Lord says. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the armies of heaven around him, on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who can entice King Ahab of Israel to go into battle against Ramoth Gilead so he will get killed? There were many suggestions. And finally a spirit approached the Lord and said, I can do it. How will you do this, the Lord asked. And the spirit replied, I will go out and I will inspire all of Ahab's pastors to speak lies. You will succeed, said the Lord. Go ahead and do it. So you see, Micaiah says, as he points to all of these prophets, the Lord has put a lying spirit in your mouths. And the Lord has pronounced your doom. Now I'll tell you what, that never goes over well at a denominational meeting. It's never going to turn out well for one pastor to stand up and point his finger at all the other pastors and tell them that they're filled with lying spirits. Livid, Mr. Preaching Award walks over, it says, and slaps Micaiah across the face. Now, this is actually very common if you study church business meetings throughout history. This stuff happens all the time. So he gets over, he slaps Micaiah across the face. And says, since when did the Spirit of the Lord leave me and enter you? But Micaiah, he jabs right back with something right out of Edgar Allan Poe. And says, you will find out soon enough when you're trying to hide in some secret room. This is good stuff. I mean, whoever said the Bible's boring or business meetings are boring? I mean, this is entertaining. Then, as often happens when preachers tell the truth... They get thrown in prison. Micaiah gets thrown in prison. Or, what often happens when preachers tell the truth, they get their head chopped off, like John the Baptist. Or, when preachers tell the truth, like us here in Canada, sometimes they get fired with a nice severance package, which means we're living in a good country, don't we? That's probably the worst that could happen to us here. Arrest him, the king of Israel ordered. Put this man in prison. Feed him nothing but bread and water until I return safely from battle. But as is the bad habit of many preachers, Micaiah makes sure that he gets the last word. And as they're dragging him off, he says, if you return safely, it will mean that the Lord has not spoken to me. And then he looked around at everybody that was in the room and says, everyone mark my words. Which is equivalent to more Edgar Allan Poe. The boundaries which divide life and death 
are at best shadowy and vague. Who shall say where the one ends and the other begins? But mark my words is easier to remember. So that's his last words. You mark my words. Well, I began this message by reading of the devastating military loss of Jehoshaphat and Ahab. Two against one. Two kings against Aram. And so I've answered the question of why this loss took place. It took place because God was not in the plans. But now that you've heard the backstory, it raises another, more complicated question. Why was Jehoshaphat in this battle in the first place? This is always a baffling thing to me. Jehoshaphat, sitting there with Ahab, hears all these false prophets, knows and is very suspicious that they are not telling the truth, specifically requests for a prophet of God to come so he can hear what God has to say. He gets his request. Micaiah comes. Micaiah says, you're doomed if you go into this battle. It's God's plan to destroy Ahab. And therefore, you should not align yourself with this. This is a battle that God is not going to bless. And then after all of that, after making things so uncomfortable, having a specific request for the prophet of God to be there, hearing the message from the prophet of God, Jehoshaphat goes to battle. Like, how does that happen? Why did he even ask then? If he was going to go to battle in the first place, why even bother asking someone to come and tell you not to do it if you're going to do it anyway? It doesn't seem to make any sense. And yet, we all know that we can have a strange intrigue for hearing the truth and yet not doing it. We can go to multiple conferences. We can download hundreds of sermons on our iPhone. We can bounce from church to church to church looking for the best preacher in town, and yet it can all make hardly any difference in our life. Because we've already got our plans made up, we've already decided how we're going to live our life, no one's going to tell us otherwise, and yet in some kind of strange way, we want to listen to other people tell us that we should do otherwise, even though we're not going to do it. Like Herod. Wanting to listen to John the Baptist. Even though he hated his message, he somehow was intrigued by it. See, it's possible to memorize the Bible. It's possible to fill in all of your Bible study fellowship blanks in your workbook. It's possible to read it over and over. It's possible even to teach Scripture. And not actually heed the message in it. The New Testament apostle James wrote this. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourself. For if you listen to the word of God and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in the mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and then you forget what you look like. 
In other words, what James is saying is, like Jehoshaphat, when we listen to God's word and then don't put it into to practice, we all become kind of Larry the Cucumbers. We all become foolish. Like someone who, in the morning, like many of you probably did this morning, got up, brushed your teeth, or you looked at yourself in the mirror, and then walked away from the mirror, walked out of the bathroom, and literally was like, okay, what do I look like? I forgot what I looked like. Um, am I bald? Do I have hair? Do I have a mustache? Did I put earrings into it? And immediately forgets what they look like. That's what it is like to listen to God's word and not put it into practice. But, he goes on, James says, if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free and do what it says and don't forget what you've heard, then God will bless you for what you're doing. See, true Bible meditation, true Bible memory is not just putting information in your head and then going about your way without even regarding it in your life. It's integrating it into the very person of who you are. How is this possible? To hear but not heed. Well, it happens all the time. After Jehoshaphat's failed battle, another prophet points to what's behind this hearing but not heeding. Points to what causes it. We read in chapter 19 that when King Jehoshaphat of Judah arrived safely home in Jerusalem, Jehu, the seer, another name for a prophet or a pastor or spiritual leader, went out to meet him. Why should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? He asked the king. Because of what you have done, the Lord is very angry with you. Even so, there is some good in you. For you have removed the Asherah poles throughout the land, and you have committed yourself to seeking God. But you have brought trouble upon yourself. Why? Because why should the good help the wicked? In other words, the issue with Jehoshaphat, the issue with all of us, the issue of what causes us to hear, 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 but not heed, is the issue of compromise. When we compromise truth with lies, we're not going to truly hear what God is saying to us. Yes, we will hear it in words, but we will not hear it in our heart. God's word will not impact us no matter how much we listen to it if we continue to live in a life that is compromised with sin. Because as I've said before, knowledge alone doesn't change people. Love does. And to whom you direct your love is to whom you will start to pattern your life after. We become that which we love. That where our heart is oriented to shapes who we become as people. God's people love what God's love and hate what God hates. 
God's people love what God loves and hate what God hates. Unless we allow God to shape our desires into his desires, we should not expect to really get anything out of listening to his word. In fact, if we continue to go on not loving the things God loves, we should even expect that listening to his word will make us worse people. Because all it does is stuff us full of information, which usually makes us arrogant and argumentative, rather than godly. See, compromise is not a bad word. There are certainly situations in which we should compromise. Paul talks about that a lot, it's especially within the community. There are many things that we do as community in learning how to love where we compromise with one another out of love. It's situational. Because then there are other areas where we absolutely cannot compromise. And that is that we cannot compromise with things that are against God. Generosity and greed cannot shake hands. You cannot be a generous, greedy person. It doesn't work. Lust and love cannot work together. One is completely selfish and uses people, and the other one is self-giving and cares the best for other people. Contemplation cannot meet commercialism halfway. You cannot be a person who is at peace and is at rest and is able to have times with God and be busy and buying and doing all the time. It doesn't work. Worry and worship cannot form an alliance. Just like Jehoshaphat and Ahab cannot work together. One cannot expect to hear from God while compromising with evil. Instead, a true lover learns to hate. Sometimes people get weirded out by the fact that God hates and that in some ways, if we truly are people who love, we have to know what it means to hate as well. Because you can only hate if you really love. Because what love means is also to hate all those things that destroy love. To hate abuse, to hate stealing and killing and destroying, to hate all the kinds of things that destroy love. That's why God's people love what God loves, but they also hate the things that God hates. God hates the things that destroy people's lives. God hates things like racism and sexism and persecution and nationalism. We can never mix God's good news in Jesus with these things, as often has done in the church, to the detriment many times of the church's witness. And this isn't easy. Many of us face situations all the time in our work, in our homes, that make you struggle with what does this look like? 
How do I practice my faith without compromising? Walter Rauschenbusch, uh, one of the ones who reminded the church that words without actions are dead, wrote back in 1907, writing to businessmen then, said, every businessman who has any finer moral discernment will realize that he himself is constantly driven by the pressures of business into actions of which he is ashamed. Men do not want to do these things. But in a given situation in their business, they have to if they want to survive and prosper. But then note what Walt uh, Rauschenbusch goes on to say. Man, they don't want to do these things, but in a given situation, they feel they have to if they want to survive or prosper. But the sum of these crooked actions gives an evil turn to their life. Like a prophet, Rauschenbusch is warning that there are some things at times in business that you may need to compromise in to truly be successful in business. But the sum of these crooked actions gives an evil turn to your life. Sometimes the Christian has to step back and say, is success worth it? Because there's a different kind of success that matters more. There are some things that Jesus' followers cannot partake in. And some of those things, resisting them, may mean from a worldly perspective that you will be less successful. But you'll maintain your personhood. You'll maintain your integrity. And you'll maintain your walk with God. Which is so much more important. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? Obviously, and, and Paul goes on to say this, obviously Paul's not talking about we can't be friends with people that don't believe as we do. In fact, Paul says that we need to be friends with people that, we don't, that don't believe like us. So we can influence them and we can encourage them. And, but he's talking here, don't team up. Don't partner yourself. Don't align yourself in some kind of bond or covenant whether through marriage or through business partnership or other types of endeavors, because it's going to lead to compromise. And a compromise that is going to destroy your walk with God. That was Jehoshaphat's mistake. And a warning to all of us. A warning to all of us because as we read about Jehoshaphat, he was a man who was extremely dedicated to God. Loved God with all of his heart. And it was his desire to serve God. And yet even Jehoshaphat 
could be tempted to compromise with evil. God's people love what God loves and hate what God hates. Let's pray. O God, our Father, protect us from all that would hurt us in our body, in our mind and spirit. Protect us from all that would injure our bodies, from habits that would injure our health, from the greed or the self-indulgence which would leave us soft and flabby, from any practice that would make our body a less efficient servant of our mind. Protect us, God. Protect us from all that would injure our minds, from mental laziness that will not think, from that preoccupation with cheap and trivial things which saps the ability of the mind to deal with the things that really matter, from the prejudice which blinds us to the truth and which makes us misjudge other people. Protect us, God. And protect us from all that would injure our hearts, from the pride that separates us from you, from the self-righteousness which separates us from others, from the self-will that will listen to no other voice, human or divine, than the voice of our own desires. Protect us, God. And grant that by your protection, we will be strong in body, vigorous in mind, and pure in spirit. And we may be enabled to do the work which you need us to do. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.